Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. At this time of year, many seem to be interested in the birth of Jesus Christ. They celebrate his birth with remembrances, with decorations, with gift giving. Some attempt to portray it in a manger scene or a creche. Others place signs declaring in their front yard, he is the reason for the season. There is apparently a general consensus that Jesus' birth was a good thing. Something so joyous that in our nation we even have a national holiday set aside, at least in some sense, for it. But if we were to interview individuals, asking them questions like, why are you celebrating? Or, why is it important to you that Jesus came? Why do you think he was born? It is certain that we would receive a great variety of answers. Some of those answers would probably be correct, and others way off base. But we don't need to wonder why Jesus was born. We don't have to be mistaken about it. Because God in the Holy Scriptures, in the verses we have just read, gives us the preeminent, the foundational, the main purpose in Jesus' birth. It's found in verse 21. Let me read it again. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice the birth. She will bear a son. Then notice his name. This child is not to be called Joseph, but Jesus. And then the reason for his name and birth is given. For, because, this is the why. This is the end or goal of his coming. Jesus is born to be a savior. And we will see repeatedly that his name matches his mission. 
That's one of the lessons here of this verse. His name matches his mission. Now most of you know that the name Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. Other forms of that word are Hosea, like the prophet in the Old Testament, or the name Josue. We know one of those. This name Jesus accurately describes who this child is and what he will do. Again, his name matches his mission. Now, many Jewish boys would have had the name Jesus. Some of them, like Joshua in the Old Testament, were well-named in the sense that his God-appointed mission in life was to be the military leader God used to temporarily save Israel from its enemies and plant them in a land. So Joshua's name matched his mission. But of course, not every Jewish male named Joshua or Hosea was a savior. But this Jesus in our text was. No less an angel from God says to Joseph, he will save. He will save. So he was named Jehovah saves because God would have his people delivered through this infant boy. And it is important to emphasize something because these verses highlight it. Our text makes it clear that Jesus is a Jewish male child. He is a son. He is conceived, yes, in a unique way, but he is fully human. Notice how many times that point is made just in these few verses that we read. In verse 18, it says, she was found to be with child. In verse 20, it talks about what is conceived in her. That's this child. Verse 21 contains the promise that Mary will bear a son. Verse 23 quotes an Old Testament prophecy that includes what? The bearing of a son. And finally, in verse 25, it declares that Mary gave birth to a son. The point is hammered home to us. Jesus was born as an infant, a male human being, a real child. Now notice something else from the text that will give rise to a vitally important question. What is the nature of the salvation that this Jesus will bring? Will he be another Joshua? a military commander to free the Jews from their Roman oppressors? Not according to our text, <laughs> which states that Jesus brings salvation or liberation or deliverance from sin. He is a spiritual savior and he brings a spiritual salvation. His salvation is not fundamentally political or military or economic. Although, of course, the salvation from sin always has after effects in those areas. He didn't come to be the religious equivalent of a George Washington or lead a liberation movement 
or save people from their credit card debt or low self-esteem. He came to rescue them from their sins. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. And here comes the question I alluded to earlier. In Scripture, God alone is the spiritual Savior of his people. Jonah 2.9 unabashedly declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's really just a quotation from Psalm 3.8, which had been written earlier. It says exactly the same thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, it's not found in human hands. Angels don't have the power of salvation. Not even aptly named babies have that ability. It's God's possession alone. Psalm 62, 1 and 2 says, From God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. So how can this human, how can this Jewish baby possibly achieve his purpose? Surely he can't spiritually save his people. Only God can accomplish that. Surely this is at best a profane declaration, if not outright blasphemy or idolatry. But of course the answer is, and you know this, <laughs> that this true man was not just a man. That's the answer to the conundrum. That's the answer to this seeming paradox. How can this human being save us? Well, he's not merely a human being. We see this in verses 22 and 23. All this took place, this birth of a baby, a real human being, <laughs> took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There's his humanity. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, he has another name. Jesus is not his only name. This other name also accurately describes his nature and his mission. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is not merely man. He is also divine. Or put plainly, yes, Jesus is human, but Jesus is also God. Amen. Because this name Emmanuel doesn't refer to the fact that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere all the time, always near us, although that's true about God. No, Emmanuel means that God has taken our humanity to his divinity. The second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, the Word, the Lagos, the wisdom of God. God himself has taken on flesh and dwells with us. How could such a thing happen? Well, our text tells us that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and formed a child within her. 
You may recall Hebrews 10.5. A number of months ago when we studied it, it says this. When he, that is Jesus, came into the world, he said, A body you have prepared for me. Or, as John puts it in John 1.14, And the word, remember the word is God and with God. So, this is divinity. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, Jesus is not just Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel. A savior who is fully man and fully God. And that's how he can be qualified to save his people from their sins. That's how he can actually accomplish saving his people from their sins. You see, he is everything necessary to be a spiritual savior. He is the God-man with names that match his mission. And what a wonderful savior this text declares him to be. Notice uh, three things about it from verse 21. Observe first the certainty of his saving work. In verse 21, it says, he will save. He will save. Jesus Emmanuel didn't come into the world merely hoping to save. He didn't only have a plan to save, although he did have that. He wasn't here just to try to accomplish something, although, of course, he did. No, Jesus' salvation work is guaranteed effective according to God's word that comes through the angel here. Jesus will succeed, says God. What that means is, if it's your idea of Christ's work, that he came to make men savable only, you know, to get them most of the way back to God so that they or somebody else could finish the work of salvation, that is utterly unscriptural. That does not glorify God. And frankly, it'll never work for you for salvation. If you need to get across the river, as it were, on a bridge to God, you have no way to walk. You have no way to swim. You can't build a bridge. It's got to be built for you, by you. In fact, it has to be Jesus. You have to go across through him to God. If it depends on you, you can't do it. Jesus didn't come to do part of or even most of the work of saving. No, he, in, he secured the entirety of salvation for his people. He is the sovereign God and no one can stop his hand. Whatever he purposes to do, he always accomplishes in full. And so there's great comfort bound up in this declaration, brothers and sisters. Are you concerned that you may not make it? I think every true Christian, at least from time to time, kind of has to look at themselves and go, oh, I, wow, I, <sighs> I can't do this on my own. I, I, I hope I make it. You will, because it all depends on Jesus, not you. 
Yes, you must respond to him rightly. Yes, you must exercise faith. Yes, yes, yes. But all of those things are provided to you in Jesus Christ. And so in statements like, and he will save his people from their sins, you should find great peace, great rest, great thanksgiving for this wonderful Savior. Right? We who by grace have believed, we know this to be true. We believe this, and so we have peace with God. Notice that this is a wonderful Savior, not only because of the certainty of his saving work, but because of the objects of his saving work. They are called his people. His people. That's covenant ownership. His people. You know, a, a Jew of Jesus' day might have thought that this refers to all of the Jewish nation and, of course, no one else. But that's not what the Bible teaches. His people are the ones that his father loved from eternity past and chose for salvation and then gave them to the son to live and die for, to save. This is plainly taught in many places in the Bible, but it's especially prominent in the Gospel of John. Let me read you five of those places. John 6.39, and this is the will of him who sent me, says Jesus, that I should lose none of all he has given me. This is God's will, that I not lose, in other words, I will save all those that he has given to me. God didn't give everyone to him or everyone would be saved. God didn't give him no one, no one would be saved. He gave him his people. All he has given me. Whatever that group of people is, that innumerable number, those are the ones that he lived for and died for and will save. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. God the Father had a number and he gave them to Jesus Christ, his son, and they will Come to the Son. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me. John 17, 2. You have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given me. What a beautiful statement. Jesus Christ from the Father has received all authority. He's invested with kingship over the entire world. But not every person in the world was given to him. Neither was it that no one was given to him. No, God the Father in his pre-time covenant with the Son gave him a people. All those that you have given to him, he will give them eternal life. John 18, 9. Of these you gave me, you know that group? Those you gave me? I have lost not one, Jesus says. Not one. Not, not even you or me. <laughs> not even wicked, you and me. He hasn't lost a single one of them. Everyone the Father gives to him will be saved. Everyone given to him will never be lost. 
So here is the certainty of Jesus' saving work. Combined with a specific people. The father gave a gift to his son. A people. And they became his people. And so those, and all of those, will be saved. Well, here's a third thing to observe about the Savior that makes him wonderful. It's the nature of this saving work. It's not only certain, and it's not only for his people, but it's from sin. It's from sin. It's a spiritual work that Christ came to perform. Now, what is sin? I hope, I hope a number of you have the Shorter Catechism question and answer memorized for this. It's very useful, and it's an excellent biblical definition. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Put more succinctly, if we were to quote 1 John, we could say simply this, sin is lawlessness. That's what John calls it. Sin is lawlessness. So we sin when we break the law of God. God has a rule for men. We call it the moral law. And it must be followed perfectly and in every aspect or a man or a woman, a boy or a girl becomes a sinner. And this is God's rightful place. Isaiah 33, 22. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. That's who God is. Well, what happens if we sin against this maker, this lawgiver, this judge, this king? Well, simply put, our sin earns wages. And the wages of sin are what? Death. The penalty for our disobedience against an infinitely holy God is separation from God forever. It is the horror of eternal death. You see, sin always and necessarily brings misery. This misery is manifold. Its penalty, first of all, is death. One of the reasons sin is so bad that evil is evil is because it brings a penalty of death. Guilt justly brings punishment, and the proper punishment for sin is death. Again, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, says God. Secondly, sin brings not just a penalty, but it brings pollution. It'd be bad enough if you just had an outward legal declaration against you of death. That would be bad. But sin is so bad that it, it not only, as it were, blackens or scarlets, better, your record, it pollutes you as a person. Sin doesn't only bring legal debts, the debt of death, it also pollutes your soul. And so our natures are fallen, corrupted, twisted, bent toward evil. Those are all Old Testament words. Most of them found in Psalm 32. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, As it is written, none is righteous. Oh, surely, no, not one. No one understands. Oh, surely, no, no one seeks for God. All 
have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Really? Really. No one does good, God says. And if the point wasn't clear enough, he then ends that verse by saying, not even one. In other words, this applies to you and me. You know, one of the, one of the bad things about sin polluting our nature is it convinces you and me that we're the exception to the rule. Yeah, I know that would be wrong for other people. But I have some very special circumstances in my life. When you are arguing that way with yourself, understand that you are most likely losing the battle of the pollution of your sin. It's raising your pride instead of lowering your proper estimation of yourself, and it has tricked you. It is deceiving you. You and I are not the exceptions. The rule always applies. Well, another part of sin's misery isn't just its penalty and its pollution, but its power. You see, sin reigns over us, and the devil, the king of sin, is our master, and he ruthlessly rules us before we know Christ. <coughs> so Romans six seventeen is true for us in our natural condition. Quote, you were slaves to sin. You were slaves to sin. The final misery of sin is its presence. We're all aware that we live in a fallen world. At least I hope we are. Hope we, hope we know that. Because all around us we see the effects of sin. It's not just within us. It has also corrupted and defiled the rest of creation. So there's no place you can go in this world to escape sin. If you could somehow purge yourself of it and then look for some desert island in the South Pacific, when you got there, what would you find? A fallen, corrupted world, and you would not have left the presence of sin. According to Romans 8.20, the creation is now subjected to futility. Even creation knows that the end result of sin is misery. And it is enslaved to corruption, which is why it is so longing, according to Romans 8, for the appearing of the Son of God and the sons of His sons, uh, believers to be made perfect because that's when its renewal comes. But you see, the good news of our text is that Jesus saves from sin. And that includes salvation from all of its miseries. Because the promise of our verse, for it to be true, that he will save, he has to be able to overcome all of these. And the good news, of course, is that He's not a little savior. He's not a savior who can, well, you know, he can help you with your guilt, but he can't help you with your pollution. He can help you with the penalty, but he can't help you with the presence. No, 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 no. Jesus will save his people from their sins. All of their sin and all of the effects of that sin. And so Jesus is the answer to the penalty of sin. You know this. He died the death we deserved in our place. 
He experienced hell for us. Separation from God on the cross. So yes, he is the answer. He is the deliverance for the penalty of sin. He's the answer to the pollution of sin. He lived a perfect life, which is credited to everyone who believes. It's counted as theirs. And then he not only counts it as ours, he sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts, and that Holy Spirit begins to work Jesus's perfect holiness into our lives. And one day it will be completed. We call that glorification. But Jesus is the answer, the deliverer from the pollution of sin. He's the deliverer from the power of sin. He defeated the devil. And he has all authority from the Father. So he frees us from our captivity. Brothers and sisters, that means the joyous news is you and I don't have to sin, at least not in the purposed transgressive sense. Yes, we still do, and this is why we still confess our sins, both privately on a daily basis and publicly on a weekly basis. But our master has been overthrown. We are no longer enslaved to the evil one. We're enslaved now to a kind and gentle shepherd who loves us and only does us good, King Jesus. Finally, Jesus delivers us from the presence of sin. He's actually already begun that. We often forget this. When he puts us with other believers, when he joins us together in a church, when he gives us perhaps a spouse who is also a believer, he is beginning to distance us from sin. Now, it's very imperfect. You and I are still very frequent and sometimes very bad sinners. But there's less of it in our lives than there used to be, which means that Jesus is beginning to deliver us from the presence of sin. And the good news is when he returns, or when we go to him before that, if that's what happens, we will be forever delivered from the very presence of sin. That's what Jesus will do for his people. And he will set us not only with sin-free bodies and sin-free souls, he will set us in a sin-free universe. He will remake it, and there'll be no place we can go to find sin. Now there's no place you can go to get away from it. The day will come when you could search out for eternity in every place, you would never find it unless God gives us, as I think the New Testament teaches us, he gives us a vision of hell. We can say, oh, there's sin there, but there's not sin here or anywhere else in the new heavens and new earth of God. Praise his name. And all of this is why Jesus was named Jesus. Because he fully saves his people from all the miseries of sin. Well, that brings us to three quick uses. Let me ask you some questions. What is your view of who Jesus is? Why do you think Jesus came? Is your answer to that question the same as God's? It must be. 
He knows the right answers. It was his plan. He perfectly executes it. He speaks with clarity in the Bible. So there shouldn't be any fogginess in your mind about why Jesus came. He came to save his people from their sins. Do you agree with God that Jesus was not just a teacher of morals, although he was that? He was more than a good example, although he was that. But he is at the very heart of his name and mission, the God-man who saves his people from their sins. I urge you, especially you young people, do not let mere human beings define Jesus for you in a way that is different than God defines Jesus in the Bible. Because if you listen to that and you believe that and you entrust yourself to that, you will perish in your sins. You have to believe on the real Jesus, the true Jesus, God's Jesus, if you're going to be saved. You are not allowed to reinvent Jesus according to your own wishes or lusts or felt needs. Again, don't make up a Jesus. That's idolatry. Instead, I ask you to do something that Christians are routinely laughed at or about. You know, you know, you know who Christians are, right? They're people who are too weak to look at reality, to face reality. Oh, no, no. Don't listen to that lie either. Christians are the only one who see the world as it really is. They don't see it perfectly, but they see it accurately. And you really do have a problem with sin. And you really do need a Savior. And unless you believe that, and unless you give yourself and trust yourself, bow to the feet of Jesus, the only Savior, you will not be saved from that. And you will have to pay for your sins yourself. Jesus is the God-man who is fully qualified to save you. He didn't come so you could have a holiday. He didn't come so you could get some nice gift one day a year. He came to live out his name. And you must agree with God and the angel, I might add. The angel got it right. Or you will not be saved. But again, you will die in your sins. Now the second use is this. It isn't necessary that you die in your sins. That doesn't have to happen. Because here is a Savior, not only worth having, but willing to have you. Now that's amazing grace. That he would actually open his arms and say, come unto me. I'm willing to receive you. Well, I am a pretty good person. He would, no, no, no. He only saves sinners. He doesn't save righteous people. No righteous person's ever been saved except Jesus himself. No one has ever been saved. Because all men are sinners. And unless they come to him, he will not save them. Because remember, he's not, he's not here to save you politically or in some other sense. He's here to save you spiritually. He's here to save you from your sins. And I can assure you that you will never have a need 
for some aspect of salvation that he can't meet. The word of God promises that if you come to him in faith, he will not cast you out and he will completely save you. And so I ask you, I plead with you, as an ordained proclaimer of the word of God, I command you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can promise you on the authority of the word of God, you will be saved. Well, thirdly and finally, for you who are Christians, I would just urge you today to rejoice with great joy. You have a glorious Savior. The Son of God condescended to humbly take on a human body and a human soul and become a suitable substitute for us. So you keep on believing that. And more than that, rest in that. Rejoice in it. Let it be a motivation for moving forward in the Christian life. And I urge you to look eagerly for your complete deliverance at his return because Jesus is a complete savior. Jesus came to save his people from their sins and he will succeed at that. So rest in him. Let's pray.